God, we confess that we are broken, that we are fallen, and that on our own we have no ability to walk in your righteousness. God, we praise you that we are clothed in your robes of righteousness, that you have made us not who we are by our nature, but who we are by your creation and by your grace. God, help us to have the strength to reach out and to be pulled from the pit by you. God, help us to know, understand, and acknowledge our need every day of our lives that you would help us to walk in your life. For it's your name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Good morning. It's great to see you. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we are going to start out there. Yeah, you can celebrate that. That's good stuff. Um, well, i tell you what. I, I, don't know, um, I don't know where you are this morning or how you feel. I just have a sense that uh, we need to stop for just a second and do something a little bit different, unique this morning. Uh, as I was praying uh, before coming up on stage, there's just something in me that wants to make sure we're actually prepared and ready to hear from God this morning. And I think this may have more to do with me than it has to do with you. Uh, but if you will, and I know we just prayed, but would you just join me again and just pray? And, uh, and I just want to ask if you would. Uh, I don't know where you've been today or this weekend or what's been going on in your heart, in your mind, what's uh, captivating you, what's taking your attention. Uh, but we have a chance this morning to be in the presence of the Holy God of the universe. And so I just want to ask, if you will, to take a moment before we engage in reading God's Word together and studying His Word. And would you just uh, ask God to have something to, to say to you today? Uh, and would you ask Him to give you uh, a heart to hear and a mind to understand and eyes to see the revealed truth that He's going to show to us? And so let's just pray for a moment. And I want to ask if you would uh, just to prepare your heart for what God has to say to you this morning, all right? So let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we come into places like this so often and it can easily become... Uh, routine or it can become um, just part of, of who we are as believers in Christ. Uh, and so it can easily become something that we, we come here not prepared, not expecting to hear from you, not ready to move into a time of worship and like we've just experienced and like we're about to experience. And, and so, Father, I just pray that in these moments that you would prepare our hearts. And Father, that you would turn our full attention undivided to you, that you would remove any distractions that we may have in our lives right now, anything that, that's keeping us from engaging fully with you. God, I pray for me that you would just uh, would help me to focus in on you, to listen to the voice of your Holy Spirit today, and, uh, and to be able to guide us to understand the power and the truth of your word. And so, Lord, we love you, and we need you. Just like the song we just sang, we need you so much. And I pray this morning that you would, uh, would just speak to us and that you would teach us through the power of your word and by your Holy Spirit. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> we're starting a new teaching series today called Signs of Life. And uh, the first question I just kind of ask is, what is it that helps us identify or know what signifies life? When you think about life, physical life, there are things that we can look at and say this signifies life, whether it's just having a pulse. You can put your fingers on the side of your throat and check and make sure your heart's still beating. Put your hand over your chest. Make sure. Check your wrist. Like if you've got a pulse, there's a good chance you've got life in your body, right? Uh, if you are breathing and taking breaths, that signifies life. It shows that there's life in our bodies. Uh, physical activity. 
is a sign of life that we just know. We can look at somebody and say, man, based on what they're doing, it appears to me they're alive, right? And so we can get all these different signs of life. Now, if you flip that same question and ask it from the perspective of, in the Christian life, what does it mean for there to be signs of life in a believer in Jesus Christ? What could you look at when you stand in front of the mirror or when you uh, stand with God's Word in front of you and you just ask, God, are there signs of spiritual life in me? Is the Christian faith not just something that I practice or, um, or have an understanding about, but something that has brought life into my body? What is it that we would say, this is a sign of life? And there are several different things. You might look at it and, and some of them might say, well, the fruits of the Spirit. Right, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If I have these things in my life, that's a sign of, of Christian life, of spiritual life. Yeah, absolutely. Then we might say something like, well, even just the expression of love, that Jesus said uh, that, that they'll know us by the way we love one another, that His followers would be known by our love. And so when we express love in a God-fearing, God-honoring way, that there is signs of life that's there. But the ultimate sign of life in a believer in Jesus Christ, is holiness. In fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so when we think about the signs of life, one of the things that we need to be looking at most importantly is, do we see signs of holiness in our life? Is there something in us that points to the fact that we have set ourselves apart for God's purposes and are desiring and striving to live with holiness. Now, as we jump into this new series, I want to invite us as a church to come into a journey together. That this might be something that we all buckle in together. We sit in a room like this a lot of times. We're around in rows around each other, near each other. But some of you, we don't know each other. It's just kind of we belong to the same church. Uh, and yet... We're all part of a body, a faith family. And I want us as a faith family to go on a journey together. So many times it's easy to come to a place like this and just say, okay, we sang the songs, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to listen to the pastor, and then I'm going to get up and I'm going to go, and I'm going to check that off of my list of things to do for the week. And I'm not going to think about this another time the rest of the week. The, the message is not going to impact anything that I say for the, or do for the rest of the week. Uh, in fact, if I could just have a moment of brutal honesty with you, this is one of the things that I struggle with as a pastor the most, is wondering if the things that we say and do from this platform makes impact and changes lives in the hearts of people that are listening, or if there's so often a chance that we would just sit and absorb things in and then go away and be like, you know what, I can get to next Sunday and look back and say, I never thought a thing about what was preached on last Sunday again. Like I wrote down notes, I took notes, and then I stuck them in my car somewhere, and I never pulled those back out again. Like is there anything at all that we would say what we do in these moments impacts the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day until we get to next Sunday and we come back together again and we're filled up again. And so what I want us to do as a church family, as a family of faith, is that we would come to a place this morning that we would say as we start this new series, I want to invite you on a journey together. That we're going to go through the book of First Peter and we're going to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be people of holiness? And so as we see what Peter says and what Peter teaches, we want to be people that God has set apart for His purposes. Not just you as an individual, but there should be accountability from you to other people in our faith family. That when you meet in your community group, 
when you have lunch with people this afternoon, when you see each other throughout the week, you run into each other at Walmart or Target or wherever it is that you are, that there could be the opportunity to not just say, hey, how you doing? You having a good week? Okay, great. See you later. But what if we could actually get in one another's faces and just say with sincerity, hey, how are you doing in your level of holiness? Are you pursuing holiness in your life? Are there things that you're learning to do more and more to become more like Jesus? in your life today than you were yesterday or last week. And so I want us as a faith family to approach this new series, Signs of Life, and be willing to have conversations with one another that says, I care about your personal growth in your faith journey in Jesus Christ. I care about your personal level of holiness, that you're learning what it means to walk with Jesus. And because of that, I want us to go on a journey together. And I want us to challenge each other and be willing to say, let's strive to be like God. Let's strive to be purposeful and intentional in a pursuit of holiness. And so with that in mind and that challenge put out there, would you just look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1 and start in verse 1. This is Peter writing, and he just says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now let's just talk for a second about some of these things. Who is Peter writing to? Peter's writing to those that he calls the elect. These are believers in Christ. They are people who have come into a faith relationship with Jesus. And not only are they in a faith relationship with Jesus, they're also scattered all over. These would be what the Scriptures would call, or we have kind of come up with a theological term for called the diaspora. Those who have been dispersed. They had been living in Jerusalem, and then after uh, the resurrection of Christ and on the day of Pentecost, uh, the gospel was preached. Thousands of people became believers in Christ. Jesus had said, go into all the world and share the gospel, make disciples, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But the the movement started in Jerusalem, and it kind of got bogged down in Jerusalem. So one of the ways that I think God allowed the gospel to spread mightily was that He allowed persecution to come into the church. And when persecution hit, the people dispersed. They spread out. They left Jerusalem, and they went all over the Roman Empire. And within a few years, hundreds of thousands of people had become believers in Jesus Christ. And so we see this. He's writing to believers, the elect, those who are called into relationship with Jesus. The emperor of this time is Nero. You're going to hear more about him in a few weeks. Uh, Mark Treese is going to preach in a few weeks, and he's going to talk a little bit more about this idea of how do we live holy lives in the face of persecution or suffering like the early church did? How do we pursue Jesus in holiness in that? Nero was the emperor of this time, and Nero hated the Christian movement. Nero wanted to snuff it out. He wanted to get rid of it altogether. In fact, one of the things that we have heard about Nero is that he would take, and in his gardens in Rome, he would take and put Christians on stakes and light them on fire to light his gardens at night. Nero was, was horrific toward Christianity. And in this moment, this is what Peter's writing to. This is the group that Peter's writing to. And he's, he's writing to people and he's reminding them, you've been chosen by God. You have, you have the, the knowledge of God stamped on your life. You have been given 
life and the sanctifying work of the Spirit has come into you to be obedient to Jesus. Like when Peter's writing this, he says one of the things that you need to know and do in your life as followers of Christ is to live and strive for obedience. That part of our life in Christ is to be people who would say, I know what Scripture teaches, but above and beyond knowing what Scripture says, I'm going to live out these practices in my daily life. There will be obedience in my life in following after the heart of God. And so Peter writes to these people and says, you are chosen by God, you're exiles from, uh, from Jerusalem, you've been scattered all over the place, but you are called to live in obedience to Jesus Christ, and you've been sprinkled with His blood. All right, now, that's a weird thing, and if you're a visitor in our church today and Christianity's kind of new for you, you're like, see, this is why I don't come to church. They talk about putting blood on people. It's weird. It's kind of crazy. Uh, he's not literally saying we've been sprinkled with, with the blood of Jesus, um, but this is something that would harken back to the Old Testament. And I actually kind of discovered this this weekend in some study that I was doing. When you think about being sprinkled with blood, there are three times that the Bible says that there was literally a sprinkling of blood. That would take place. The first one was when Moses came off of the mountain of Sinai and had been given the tablets of the Ten Commandments. When he wanted to, uh, to show the people that they had walked into a covenant relationship with God and had been given God's laws, the Bible says that he literally, they killed animals and then they sprinkled the people with blood. It signified a covenant relationship. You are now in a relationship with me. The second time that they did this was with Aaron and his sons when they came into the priesthood. And so they took Aaron and they dressed him in his priestly robes and then they sprinkled blood over Aaron and his children. And it was a sign of the priesthood that they would be the priests before the people and to God, that they would make sacrifices on God's behalf or on the people's behalf to God, that they would have this relationship that would bring the people into closer proximity to God. The third one was in the case of leprosy. If you had leprosy, you were put out of the camp in Israel. You couldn't be around the, the people of God because it was infectious, right? And so people would, would contract leprosy. They would be dismissed from the camp. But if a miracle occurred and healing took place, one of the things that they would do when you were brought back into the camp to come and show yourself to the priest, prove that you had been cured of your leprosy, is that they would sprinkle someone in blood. And it was this time, which is like weird, right? Because you're like, there's more diseases that could happen than the leprosy in the first place, right? Uh, and so that's just where my brain goes. I don't know how you felt about that. But, um, but you've got this element of saying there, are, uh, there is someone now who's been sprinkled. They've been forgiven or they've been purified and cleansed. It, sim it symbolizes that they have a new standing in the community. And so you think about this, and when Peter writes this, he says, you're God's elect, you're exiles scattered throughout uh, all these, these provinces, and you've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. So think about that for our terms and in our life. What does this mean for us? If you take these Old Testament views of the sprinkling and you put it on us and say, we've been sprinkled through the blood of Christ. We've been given a new covenant. That our salvation doesn't come from obedience to the law, it comes from obedience to the man Christ, Jesus. That we live in obedience to Him. That He offers grace to us. That our sins have been forgiven and washed away. The second thing is like the priest. Aaron and his sons were sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. Well, we have been given a call to be the priests of God. We are made priests in His family. And then the third would be like the leprosy that would be shown. When we come into this faith relationship with Jesus, we've been cleansed of our sin. We've been washed, made new. We show ourselves to the world and say, we're different now. We're clean. God's done a work in my life and it's changing who I am. 
Therefore, I'm going to live in obedience to God above and beyond anything else. And so in the middle of all the persecution that the church is facing, Peter's offering encouragement and counsel to the people who are striving to live out their faith in Jesus by being obedient to Him as Lord and Savior of their life. And the most important and greatest counsel that he gives them, actually, if you skip down to verse 14, if you're following along and reading with us, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, here's Peter's greatest counsel. We've talked about being obedient to Christ. So he says, So as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. And so Peter quotes a passage from Leviticus. And he says, when you're called into faith in Christ as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you have when you lived in ignorance. Peter tells us that obedience to God means no longer conforming to sinful, evil desires. That there are things in life that would seek to trip us up in our following of Christ. They would keep us from being obedient to Jesus. And he says, as obedient, as obedient children, you cannot conform any longer to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So what we need to understand is that when people live in ignorance, they follow after their own hearts. They don't follow after Christ. But being a follower of Jesus means being called out of sin and in a relationship with Him marked by obedience. Now, in the early church, there was a word. The term for the gathering of the early church was ecclesia. When they would call people to come and gather, it was known as the ecclesia. It was the gathering of the people of Christ. And so when they would go through the towns and they would tell people, hey, it's time for the ecclesia, let's go to the ecclesia, it's time for the joining, the gathering of Christians. Uh, there were some people who would go, they would be part of the gathering, they would be uh, living their lives, striving to be obedient. There would be other people who would not come, that were not in faith in Christ, or they just kind of said, hey, you know what, it's kind of a difficult time for me to close up shop right now to go to church, so I'm just going to keep my business running. And so there was a term that the early church created when they would go to the ecclesia for people who didn't make it to the gatherings. Do you know what that term was? Idiotes. We get our English word, idiots, from that word. And so we think about this idea of being in relationship with God and called into obedience with Him to join in with the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people. But to miss out on that or not to live in obedience to Christ makes you and makes me idiots. And so Paul, Peter says, just as he who called you has holy, be holy in all you do. In verse 14, don't conform to the evil desires you have when you lived in ignorance. Right? This idea of being ignorant, of being an idiot, of being someone who says, I didn't, I didn't know that living that way was causing me not to have a relationship with Christ. But when we come into this faith relationship that we're called to obedience in Christ, he says, you have to put away the ignorance of your past. And you have to strive now to live in obedience to the full gospel truth of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So Peter says, obedient children don't conform to the evil, sinful desires. That's ignorant. We can't do that anymore. So if you think about your life and go, what are the things that tug at me, that pull at me, that are evil, sinful, wicked desires? When I embrace those things, I'm acting in ignorance. I'm acting like an idiot. And God's called me away from that and into something greater. But instead, Peter writes to the church, and that's you and me included. When he's writing this, he's not just writing to the first century church. We're meant to receive this letter 
It was preserved for us by God and His Holy Spirit over the ages to show us this is written for us. We're supposed to listen and heed the advice of what Peter's saying. So he says in order to overcome this desire to live back in that past and do the things that are ignorant, he says we have to obey what Christ says. And just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. The God we've entered into relationship with is a holy God. And therefore, we're expected to be holy as well. And we talked about that in our last series, that God is holy, that He is set apart, that He is altogether different from us, that He is without sin. He has distinguished Himself from sinfulness. That He knows what is right and He does what is right always. That God is set apart in that way. He is holy. So for us to be set apart and be holy, here's the definition of that. If you want to take notes this morning, if you're following along either on the YouVersion app uh, or on the bulletin, on the back side of your bulletin, you want to write a couple of things down, just write this down. Here's Jerry Bridges' definition of holiness for us as humans, not God, but for us. He says, to be holy is to be morally blameless. It's to be separated from sin and therefore to be consecrated to God. The word signifies separation to God and the conduct befitting those who are so separated. And so he says, for us, when we think about this idea of being consecrated to God, chosen by God, separated to God, and the conduct that's befitting those who are separated into that relationship. He says, holiness is about moral blamelessness that you look at your life and you say, I'm striving to follow after the heart of God, that I want to live under His commands in obedience to His ways. I want to know what the Scripture says, and I want to live those things out. I'm going to learn that sin is destructive, and I'm going to do everything I can to separate myself from sin, that I want to be holy and set apart and different from the rest of the world. And I want to be set apart to God. Not to myself. I don't want to make morality my God. I want to be set apart to God. That's the starting point. That holiness means we're set apart to God. And then as we're set apart to God, our conduct becomes fitting to that relationship. And so we'll act in moral blamelessness. So here's a question for us to ask this morning. Well, why do I have to be holy? Right? Like, if I want to have a relationship with Jesus, when I, when I got saved initially, maybe this is how you kind of felt. Nobody told me that there was an, a holiness factor. Like, I got saved because somebody told me that if I didn't, I was going to go to hell when I die. And I didn't like that prospect. And so I wanted this relationship with Jesus because it's a get-out-of-hell-free card. But why now do I have to be holy? Like, lifestyle change? I thought this was just about not go to hell when you die. Well, if you were told that or led to believe that, first, I'm sorry. Someone who shared the gospel with you gave you part of the gospel, but not the full picture. See, the full picture of the gospel is that we are changed internally and entirely by God. And when the internal changes start happening, externally it shows itself through. And that the things that we used to do and find pleasure in that were sinful, we'll now learn to say no to those things so that we can walk in obedience to God and we will live holy in His sight. Morally blameless, upright before Him, set apart for His purposes. And so when we see all of this, we need to understand that the reason we have to be holy is simple. And here's the next blank on your outline. Why do I have to be holy? Well, it's simple. Because God is holy. And Peter quotes this passage. He says, be holy because God is holy. That's the why. 
Be holy because I'm holy. Now listen, I want you to not miss something. It doesn't say be holy like I'm holy. He says you be holy because I'm holy. Like we need to understand that we can't be holy in the same exact way God is holy. God is without sin. He cannot be tempted by sin. He cannot engage in sin. He is holy in a way that we cannot even fathom or understand. So we're not called to be holy like God is holy in the entirety of God's holiness. Do you understand that? But we're to strive to be holy, morally blameless, set apart from sin, set apart to God because God is holy. And because He's holy, He's called us into that journey and into that life of holiness. We're still going to mess up. We're still going to fall into sin. We're still going to bow to temptation. So we're not holy like God is holy, but we're striving to be more and more like Christ every day. And the process of sanctification in the life of a believer is this process of making us more like Jesus on a daily basis. That we're more holy today than we were yesterday. And that we'll be more holy tomorrow than we were today. And that there's a process of continuing to do that. Jerry Bridges said this about this idea of why do we need to be holy. In his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives at our salvation, He comes to make us holy in practice. If there is not then at least a yearning in our hearts to live a holy life pleasing to God, we need to seriously question whether our faith in Christ is genuine. True salvation brings with it a desire to be made holy. When God saves us through Christ, He not only saves us from the penalty of sin, but also from its dominion. And I love what He says in that last part, that when we're saved, it's not just to get out of hell free. We're not just saved from the consequences of sin. We're saved from the dominion of sin. We're saved from the power that sin has over us. That God breaks off the chains that have held us back and He allows us to run in His freedom and in His grace and in His goodness. And so holiness is an invitation by God to say, cast off all the sin and the constraints of the past and run into the new freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. So are we doing that? Are we living holy lives? We've talked for several weeks leading up to Easter about what it means for God to be holy. And I want to spend the next several weeks talking about what it means for us to be holy. Why is this important in the life of a believer? Because God is holy. And because if you're going to walk in a relationship with Christ, you want to be like Christ. And because He's holy, you're invited on a journey of holiness. And so a couple of you may be thinking, well, you know, I've had a relationship with Jesus, and I even desire to be more holy, but... I just don't quite know what to do. Like, how do you get there? What's the step? What are the progressions toward holiness? I want to give you two things this morning and the next couple of blanks on your outline. The first is this. To be holy, learn to identify unholiness. If you want to be holy, learn to identify what's unholy. Learn to know what the Bible says sin is, what God says sin is, and learn to look at those things and say, that doesn't belong in my life. If I've been pursuing those things, I have to stop. I have to put those things away and move on in following Christ in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. And so you might think through some things. What about those things that are in, in holy, or unholy, impure? So maybe it's impure thoughts. You say, man, I just sit around and think about things that, that if, if anybody else knew was in my brain, they would look at me and just go, you are such a sleazebag. What is wrong with you? 
Those impure thoughts that we allow to creep into our mind. God says, hey, those things are unholy. You need to cleanse your mind. Some, some other things, a bad attitude. You know, well, that's kind of simple. Well, yeah, it is. But do you just, are you one of those people that just has a bad attitude about everything? God will say, hey, listen, there's, there's life that you've been given. There's joy and happiness and freedom and, and this bad negativity, all the stuff that's in your life right now. You need to learn to say no to that. That's an unholy way to live life. It's not set apart to God. Things like filthy language. That you look out of your life and you just go, I just have a mouth that spouts out stuff that's nasty all the time. It's either bad words that I use or ways that I talk to people that are inappropriate and things that I say. And I just have an unholy mouth. It's not been consecrated to God. It's not been turned over to His Lordship to say, God, this doesn't look like holiness in the life of a believer. Would you take these words out of my mouth? Would you take how I speak to people that's rude and inappropriate and improper, would you remove that from me so that I can pursue holiness, so that I can walk in that way? Would you get rid of filthy language from your mouth? The other one is sexual immorality, where you look at some things and just go, man, I, I just pursue immoral things all the time. I'm just looking at pornography or the way that I think about women or men and degrade people and just lust over those kinds of things and... What is it in your life that you would say that just doesn't belong? I need to learn to identify unholy things and say no to them. Other things, racism, judgmentalism, hatred. When you think about what it means to live a holy life, one of the starting points is just to identify unholiness. If we want to be holy, we have to learn to see sin as displeasing and unacceptable to God. Now here's the problem with what sin does. Sin takes natural things and wants to draw us to use them in unholy ways. So sin will take something like the need for clothing and shelter, which is a basic need for us, right? Sin will take that and turn it into materialism. And say, that, that's an unholy pursuit of housing and clothing and those kinds of things, when you let it slip into that realm. Sin will take something as natural as our sexual desires and in our relationship with our spouses, and it will turn it towards sexual immorality. And it will push us toward pursuing things outside of a relationship with Christ that doesn't look like living in obedience to Him. So the natural draw of sin is to take what God says is good and twist it and bend it into something that's inappropriate and that's unholy. And so our first step in this is to recognize and identify unholiness. Here's the second thing. To be holy, say no to sin. If you want to be holy... Learn to say no to sin. Do you have comfortable sins, things that you've just become acceptable to you even though you know the Bible speaks against it and God's displeased by it? Do you have some things in your life that you've just kind of, at one point in time you said, I, look, I know this is wrong, but I just haven't been able to stop. I haven't been able to get over it. And so I'm just, I just let it stay. I, you know, it's, it's just kind of become part of my life. Or maybe you've even convinced yourself and said, you know what, God just made me this way. This is how God made me. I know the Bible says it's wrong, but I've just embraced this idea that that's how God made me, and so I'm not going to try to fight against it. Where we would naturally look at our life and say, the things that God has done in our lives, and the things that we are, and who we are, when we measure it against Scripture, if Scripture says it's sinful, we have to do everything in our power to root it out of our life, to follow in obedience to Christ. That's what it means to be holy. Learn to say no. And here's the great thing. Through our faith in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to say no to sin. Look at a passage in Titus chapter 2, 
verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us God's grace. When He looks at us and says, I forgive you. My grace is extended to you. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as Paul writes to Titus, he says, listen, don't wait and just think, hey, when I get to heaven, God will change it all and I'll be holy in heaven. He says, in the meantime, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, learn to say no to sin. God gives us the power through the Holy Spirit that He puts into our lives when we come into faith in Christ. And He's saying, I want you to learn to say no to things. The things that you think you can't have victory over in your life. God isn't necessarily about you winning victory over things as if that's something you accomplished. He wants you to walk in obedience to Him and let Him accomplish things in you. So turn those things over to God that you identify in your life and say, that's sinful, it's in my life and it doesn't belong there. God, I haven't been able to get rid of this. I'm giving you authority and power to remove this from my life. Help me to do that under the power of your Holy Spirit. And when I'm tempted to do something that's sinful, help me say no. I want to say no. And guess what? God gives you the power through His Holy Spirit in you to be able to do that. Keep trusting Him. Keep praying. Stay on your face before God. Trust that He can take those things and remove it from life and walk with you through those difficult times as you're learning to stamp out sin in your life. So here's the next question. How do we accomplish these two things? How do we identify what's unholy and how do we say no to them? 1 Peter 1.13, back in our primary text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. So here's the two things on your outline. First is this. Prepare your minds for action. Don't live in ignorance. Don't just be that person that's going, Oh man, I was unprepared. I didn't, I didn't think I would ever be tempted again by sin once I became a believer in Christ. Prepare your minds for action. And the second thing is be self-controlled. And that's what Paul said to, to Titus in Titus chapter 2. Be self-controlled and alert. Know that there are things that you need to be able to do to be controlled, to be able to control your body, not to jump towards sin. And here's the thing that's impressive about how God thinks about this is that He understands that we can't do this on our own. That's why He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. Holiness has to be achieved in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in us to reveal sin. He's going to do that. There's going to be times that you're just going along, doing your normal daily thing, and all of a sudden you're going to think a bad thought towards someone or uh, something's going to pop into your mind that's inappropriate and the Spirit of God is going to go, hey, whoa, what was that? Why did you just think about that? That's inappropriate. It doesn't belong there. You need to get that out. That's what the Spirit's job is. He reveals sin in us. I can't tell you how many times I'll be just doing something, even in my own family, with my kids. Maybe I have an outburst of temper toward my kids when they do something and it'll just in the moment, the Holy Spirit will go, what was that about? What, what did they do? Th- this is about you. You're tired, you're angry, something wasn't going well in life, and you took it out on them. Why would you do that? And the Spirit of God will convict of sin to where then I need to say, Hey, God, I am so sorry. I apologize for my behavior toward my kids. And then guess what I do? I go to my kids and I ask their forgiveness too. 
And so when we think about these things that God does, He is going to put His Spirit in our life to convict us of sin, to reveal sin, and call us to obedience. He stirs our affections for the glory of God so that sin loses its appeal. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. He's going to stir you and arouse you toward a passion for the glory of God so that you'll look at other things, sinful things, and you'll just go, I don't even like that anymore. This thing that used to have a grip on my life, I, I, I despise that now because compared to the glory of God and what I'm living for and pursuing holiness, this has no appeal to me. And so we learn to say no. Let me give you three illustrations quickly and then we'll be done. Because we can't get there on our own, we have to let God play His part, but we also have a part to play. And so you can think about it like farming. Uh, farming is one of those things that is a job, an ultimate job that's in cooperation with God, right? Like there's the farmer's part and there's God's part. And the farmer has to do everything that he can to cultivate land, to produce, uh, to plant seed, to get things ready for a harvest. But then at some point, the farmer has to step back and go, all right, I did my part. God, it's in your hands now. I can't control soil. I can't control rain. I can't control sunshine. So I've worked on my part. God, I'm trusting you to do your part to bring a harvest. But now imagine a farmer that would sit back and just kind of say, man, I bought this farm. I'm excited about this. And, uh, and God, just go for it. Go. I, you know, I'm not, I haven't tilled any soil. I haven't planted a single seed. Um, I haven't done anything to cultivate any part of my land. But, God, you just go for it. I'd love corn in this section. And could we have some maybe, you know, green beans over here? Uh, however broccoli grows, just kill that part of the land. All right, whatever. Um, but God, I'm just going to, you do your part. All of it's your part. Well, the same thing would be true in the life of a Christian. We can't have that mentality and that attitude of saying, if God wants me to be holy, he'll just make me holy. He'll just change me. God will show you where sin exists. His spirit will point out where you have problems. But it's up to you to join with God in his work to say no to sin to identify unholiness and to do whatever steps it takes to avoid sinful activity. And so to be holy, you listen to the Spirit of God and then you do your part to go as well. The second illustration would be that from Scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You may remember the story of three young Jewish men who were put in a difficult situation. They were stood in front of a statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had built. The statue was 90 feet high. You can read this in Daniel. Uh, and in the book of Daniel, it says that the king had gotten to a place where he wanted to be worshipped as a god, and so he built and erected a statue for himself, and he called the entire province of Babylon together to come to before this statue in a giant field. And he said, I'm going to play music, and when you hear the music play, everybody bows down to the statue and worships. And if you don't, there's a furnace that's waiting for you. I'll burn you alive. And so these three Jewish men who knew what God's command was, I shall have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol for yourself. They're put in this situation. They're faced with this moment. And when the music plays and everyone else around them bows down, they're just standing in a field. Just three Jewish boys, young men, who take a stand. And here's why they're able to do that. Because in a moment of temptation, in a moment of pressure, in a moment where everybody else was doing sinful activity, 
these guys knew and had made a plan at a previous time in their life to say, God's Word says worshiping idols is wrong. If I'm ever put in front of a situation where I have to worship an idol, I will say no to that. But they planned ahead of time to do that. So when the moment came, there wasn't a question, guys, what do we do? Do you know anything, any Bible verses about this? Is there anything God says is wrong? Should we go ahead and do this? I mean, everybody else is doing it. No, they knew what God's Word said. They planned ahead of time. If we're ever placed in a situation like that, here's how we're going to respond. So think about your life. Has there been things in your life that you have said, I've made choices ahead of time that I will not cheat on my spouse, that I won't cheat on my taxes? that I won't engage in inappropriate relationships, that I won't have inappropriate conversations, that I'm not going to look at inappropriate things. And I've chosen ahead of time because I know what God's Word says a holy life looks like, so I'm able to say I will not participate and engage in those things. And when the temptation is put in front of me, I have a much greater chance because I've made a previous decision and I know the truth of God's Word, I have a much greater chance of standing against temptation and saying no to sin. Last illustration, when I was working uh, my first job uh, in college, other than my dad. My dad always owned businesses, so I always worked for my dad. Uh, and so, But my first kind of secular job, my own personal job, uh, I got to be a, a waiter at the Cracker Barrel. All right, fantastic. Brand new store in Morristown. We love the Cracker Barrel. Finally got one. It's awesome. And so I'm going to wait tables at the Cracker Barrel, right? In my first week on the job, as a 19-year-old kid, Older servers, older waiters, waiters and waitresses, they come around and they're like, hey, listen, here's what, here's what you need to know. At the end of the day, you submit your tips, right? Because that's how servers make their money. When you go to lunch today, tip well. Be followers of Christ, not sticks in the mud, all right? And so that's how they make their money. They get paid like $2 an hour. So their tips are important. And so at the end of the day, you count your tips and you submit on the computer, here's how much I made. Well, the servers there at the Cracker Barrel, one at a time, kind of came up to me and said, hey, listen, has somebody already told you? You may have already been told this, but here's how things work. Uh, don't submit the full amount of your tips. Why? Well, we're taxed on that. And so the more you submit, if you submit the full amount, you're going to be taxed on the full amount. And also, if we're not submitting the full amount of what we made, and you are submitting the full amount of what you made, and if we submit that we made $75 in a shift, and you submit that you made $125 in a shift, then the managers are going to look at that and go, why is he such a better waiter than you guys are? Why does he make more money than you guys do? And there's, somebody's going to find out what we're doing here. So you need to not submit all your tips. Well, guess what? As a believer in Christ, even at 19 years old, I believed that was called stealing. And that I believe that was called lying. And so in a moment for me, as a first time in the adult world, having to make decisions about will I live a life of holiness, will my faith be genuine to me, or will I bow to pressure, I had to get to a place where I said, you know what, you guys can do whatever you want to with your tips and how you submit that. I have to submit everything that I make. Whether that means I get taxed more on it, or whether it means you get found out by the managers, I'm going to choose to be holy in the way that I live. I'm going to choose to do things the way that I believe God wants me to live. I'm going to act and live in obedience to Him. So this morning, have you made a choice to plan to be holy? Is holiness a sign of life for you? And here's how I want to close. I want to give you three questions. This week, maybe in your community group, Maybe just in your own personal life, maybe in your um, 
in your faith life, just following Christ, in your personal um, time with God, in, in personal Bible study and worship, I want to leave you with three questions to consider this week as we as a church join together as a faith family toward a deeper life of holiness. And so here's three questions to consider this week. Number one, is there evidence of practical holiness in my life? When I look at my life, is there evidence of practical holiness? Things that I would say, this looks like obedience to God. I've been set apart. I've set apart from sin. I've been consecrated to God. Is there evidence of practical holiness? Number two, do I desire and strive after holiness? Do you want it? Are you striving for holiness? Is that a passion of your life? That as a follower of Jesus, it's not just good enough not to go to hell when you die, but that you want to be transformed by God every day, every week, every month, every year, more and more holy? Do I desire and strive after holiness? And then last, do I grieve over my lack of holiness and earnestly seek the help of God to be holy? Do I grieve over my lack of holiness? and earnestly seek the help of God to be holy. When I identify things in my life that don't, don't belong there, am I broken over that? Do I confess that sin? Because there will be times, I mean, I've experienced times just recently, relapses into sin. Have you ever had a relapse? Those aren't fun, are they? I've had to get on my face before God and just say, God, I know this doesn't belong. Listen, the hardest message in the world for me to preach is when you stand in front of a, a group of people and say, let's talk about being holy, and I'm supposed to be holy. Like, who am I? If you knew my heart and my mind, I'm just as broken as anybody else. There are so many things that keep me on my face before God, just saying, this doesn't fit, it doesn't belong, I don't want it. So help me to say no. Help me to put this to death. We have to strive for it. We've got to want it. We've got to act in obedience with Christ to make it happen. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can. So we're going to sing again one last song and worship together. But in this first verse, I just want you to take a few minutes before we'll be invited to sing out. Would you just consider those three questions? Just think through those things this morning. And then Phil's going to invite you to join us and sing. But as we take this first part of this first verse, just think through these questions see what it looks like in your life.